please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We have a special guest today. His name is Manny Mvula. He is from Zambia and the topic we're going to discuss is one that is surrounded by a lot of emotion and contention on every continent. That is the hunting of wildlife or the killing or also known as culling of wildlife, whether it be for sustainability or trophy, and the multifaceted arguments and debates that surround these very different and difficult aspects. The African local who must live with wildlife in wildlife-rich areas, including the predators and the largest land mammal of all, elephants, or the NGO leaders with specific agendas and goals, and the changing political climates, economics, and the sporting industries. We've got a great conversation lined up for you today, so I'd like to introduce uh, Manny Mvula, who is from Zambia, and he works on all sides of these layers. He's a leading conservationist with organizations as such as the IUCN in the Zambian Parks and Wildlife Departments under his belt. He is also the co-founder of the High Five Club and co-creator of the Snared Project, a multimedia dramatization that has taken the stage by storm. Welcome to Our Wild World, Manny. How are you today? Thanks, Ellie. I'm good and all ready to go. Fantastic. Excellent, because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. I'm just going to jump right in um, and get this conversation going. Since uh, you are from Zambia and have done a lot of work with a wide variety of wildlife, uh, national parks, communities, education, um, how is it that you see how do how do you see communities see how do you see communities see value in wildlife? Well, Ellie, um, I've had a remarkable journey, and I believe I've, I've been very very fortunate indeed. And uh, having been raised in local community, grown up, born and bred Zambian. Um, obviously, communities need to have a, a say in the running and managing of their own wildlife. And uh, when they are sidelined, it becomes a tremendously difficult issue that they obviously will not have any reason whatsoever. And so we are at this moment in time, as we speak, it is very, very difficult indeed for any communities to trust some of these NGOs and trust any government at all. Absolutely. That's uh, a subject we've been covering a lot on various episodes of Our Wild World. And the model of conservation has to change. 
uh, we've seen over the last hundred years this Western model being implemented upon Africa and her wildlife isn't working. Um, so we've got to find a, a, a shift. The paradigm has to shift. Do you think it is changing? Well, the, talking about implementing the, the Western sort of uh, you know, style of uh, conservation, of course it can be implemented, but obviously without the say of the local communities, then that's where everything falls apart. <laughs> you... When you impose something on a community, and a community are not just one single unit or entity, they are individuals living within those communities. And in order to bring people together, to actually capacity build, make them understand where you're coming from, and also understand their point of view, that is what is absolutely lacking in most of the approaches in modern conservation. I couldn't agree with you more. What really do most of the indigenous Africans um, that you work with and, and encounter, who are custodians of the land, what do they think about trophy hunting? Do they think it is a model for success in wildlife conservation? Well, Ellie, you're asking me about a very contentious subject here, and I don't know how much we can cover and how much time you've got, but truly speaking, uh, most of the local people, local communities, uh, people that I know, some of my family, they do not believe that hunting has got any place in current in modern society. Why? I can explain to you now, because if there is nothing that is accruing towards the local communities, i.e. there's nothing they're getting out of it, why should they then value and believe in conservation? And why should the hunter actually be the beneficiary rather than whatever is happening within that particular area actually has to be for the local people themselves? Excellent answer. Um, and I'd just like to clarify the kind of hunting we're talking about. There are so many different forms of quote-unquote hunting. There's sustainable so-called sustainable hunting, let's call it subsistence, for meat, which is would be the same as us hunting elk or deer and the prey species. And then there is trophy hunting, which is um, the magnificent spe- uh, specimens of a species, which is usually the carnivores that are taken for trophy. And carnivores play an, an, an incredibly critical role in our ecosystems. Then there is the large-scale poaching or bushmeat trade, which is not a sustainable use and not for subsistence. It's going on to the international market. So in terms of the questions of what do indigenous Africans who are the custodians think, let's break that down into these various um, forms of hunting, uh, subsistence, commercial bushmeat, and trophy. Right, uh, that's very, very good indeed, if we can break that up into components. Right, starting off with the subsistence, subsistence poaching, which, or subsistence hunting, if you may call it, where local communities actually have got the entitlement, or may, have, may feel they've got the right, to harvest what truly they believe is theirs, and it's right on their doorsteps. And they've done this for many, many years indeed, and, you know, so obviously by an area being designated a national park, suddenly overnight, a local person who's actually been out there to get, you know, a rabbit or perhaps a deer and so on and so forth, uh, they get, you know, sort of termed as a poacher. Obviously, that then causes significant problems. I've been in situations 
where local people that have actually only lived by subsistence, you know, survival, i.e. gaining sustenance from their own resources, are termed as poachers, prosecuted and put into prison. And they feel as if they do not actually have the right or a say in what belongs to them. And on one other one, moving on from that, the commercial poaching, it's not your local villager that is actually involved in. I tell you what, Ellie, the biggest issue is the middleman. The men that have got these sharp suits, they drive their beamers, they're wearing their, their gold watches in the cities. They're the ones that actually are the beneficiaries and they end the money. The local person goes and spends weeks on end in the bush because they obviously get told, I'm going to give you, a, you know, three, four, five, five dollars or something for whatever you can actually bring for me. And I'm going to go and sell this. And it becomes a, a significant problem. But these middlemen who are wearing these sharp suits and completely protected, and perhaps they do have an inner connection within government and in, in some of these political circles, they actually are protected and they cannot be arrested. Once the local person gets arrested, he then is barred from speaking. He can't say anything. You bring up a really, really good point about the middlemen and that the poacher these days, um, I think a lot of the West, when they hear on Facebook or Twitter or the news, somebody, um, a poacher has killed an elephant, that they're thinking that this is some tribal African with a poisoned arrow. That's not the case anymore. Poaching is highly organized. It says, think drug cartels. It is a wildlife poaching cartel. And the middlemen are not usually, there may be someone in a high political circle in Africa because these days with such well protected species as rhino and elephant to go in and kill with AK-47s and hand grenades 300 elephant at a time would not be possible without, um, huge coordination and some sort of uh, connection somewhere. I'm not going to get libelous and I'm not going to be pointing fingers. But as you just said, um, government is involved in here somewhere. And I guess that um, leads into another question is, um, um, you know, what role is government playing in this? There's, on the one hand, we hear about all the efforts across sub-Saharan Africa and wildlife-rich areas what the governments are doing in requesting aid to crack down on poachers. But at the same time, how are we dealing with this? And what does the um, average African um, who's living with that wildlife in their backyard have to say about this? Or do they deal, feel disenfranchised by their own policies? They certainly do feel disenfranchised, as you say. But before I move on to this question, Ellie, there's just one other thing I would like to add on. Um, with regards to uh, the local people and how they are completely um, sort of alienated from um, you know, managing their own resources, that is a significant problem in itself. Yes. And we mustn't run and escape away from it. If people feel completely you know, powerless and that they don't feel they've got any chance at all to actually run their own resources, then they're going to feel, what's the reason? What's the need for it? We don't have any reason. Um, elephants coming into the village, and it's no longer an elephant that has actually been, you know, uh, speared or anything like that. It is an organized syndicate. It is they're so much sophisticated. I'll give you an example. More than 400 rhinos in South Africa last year alone were butchered. And this is so organized 
the sophistication, the level of sophistication, far, 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 completely just puts to shame the government's support system. That should be there to actually stop this from happening. Now, coming to the issue of what local communities uh, think about this, they obviously feel disenfranchised, and indeed the only way that they can actually feel part and parcel of it is a local capacity building and ensuring that there is benefits. For example, hunting. There is far less of what hunting contributes to local communities in comparison to what non-consumptive tourism or utilization contributes to local communities. And I know that there will be a lot of, this is quite a hot debate yes. at the moment. And it is something that is a, a live debate. It's quite hot. And indeed, I would like to take on anyone who that you want to challenge me on this because I have lived a life in rural Africa and I have experienced it. I have been on the receiving end. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm just a little speechless right now. That was such an incredible amount of information you just gave us. Um, so um, I'm going to lead into another question here that will come back around to um, the hunting, which we're going to take up more. As you said, it is a very contentious and emotional issue and looked at very differently by, let's say, the Western world, including the developed world, um, the majorly urbanized world, uh, the West and the UK and Europe versus the developing world, which still has this wildlife, such as Africa. And it's crossing that bridge. It's climbing the economic ladder. And uh, it seems today sometimes that progress is equaling uh, wealth and power. And, of course, there's a, a role the government can play in that. Let's just take a little sidetrack for a minute to another form of wildlife management control, which is called culling which is killing large numbers of animals, and it usually means elephants. Sometimes it's a pride of lions, um, mostly elephants because they take so much space and have so much need for room to do what they do to live. So why is culling not considered the best option given our human population explosion? This is a, a sort of a multi-part question. And why is it that wildlife and the land must always pay in terms of loss of life for our human expansion? What about less population so there's more space for wildlife? Absolutely. couldn't agree more with you because um, our human population is exploding. There is not enough room at all uh, for any wildlife and as far as Africa is concerned, I mean, there's about 70% of Africa that is still quite unexplored or unexploited, if you like. And this was highlighted in the recent uh, documentary by Sir David Attenborough called Africa. Yes. He pointed out that big chunk of Africa, but although this is, too, this is going to be too late if we don't take any steps in actually trying to alleviate this progression, there is a significant, indeed, and probably an unstoppable invasion of Africa currently happening. Um, you know, I might, someone might, might say, or perhaps somebody might phone in and say, well, no, hang on, this is probably not quite right. But there is an invasion of Africa by, by China, and that is something that I'm very, very passionate about. It's a subject that's very close to my heart, and I can see things happening. And so it is a, a big, big issue. It's a big problem. Um, you know, sort of Western world uh, needs to actually 
pool their resources together, if they consider the wildlife resources or perhaps the biodiversity that currently exists in Africa is well worth serving? And is it something that is a biological foundation on which the human race survives or perhaps should actually think about, you know, uh, we actually rest our, our future on? Uh, they should actually really be supportive. The disparity in as far as wealth is concerned is another issue. Most of rural Africa are very, very poor. There is enough food that gets grown in this world at this moment in time, but there are people in Africa, in the developing world, not only Africa, may I say, are dying right now. There are children dying. Uh, in my show, recently, which I'll be performing tomorrow, uh, no, on Wednesday actually, I'm actually performing at the University of Kent called SNARED. I'm hoping to point out that the international communities, particularly the developed world, are completely um, uh, taking a blind or putting, making, taking a blind eye, ignoring the tax avoidance in Zambia, which is my home country. A big, big company that has been operating there recently has been found to actually owe Zambia more than 10 billion, you, you know, British pounds. They've been avoiding it. It might be legal, however, but is it ethical or is it, you know, moral thing to do? And Zambia, the developing world, the developed world has actually got, I must say, it actually takes about 70 billion out of the developing world, which otherwise would be used for about 78,000 kids or children under the, under the age of five. These are some stunning, stunning facts and information. And uh, right now we need to head into a little bit of a break, and we're going to pick up this conversation when we come back. So if you're interested in joining in the conversation, give us a call at 866-472-5788 or email me at wildize at wildeyes.org. We would love to hear from our listeners um, to join in on this uh, hot topic. And uh, we'll be back right after the break and with Manny Mvula and continue on. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Snared Project also. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. 
We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back to Our Wild World and our special guest, Manny Mvula from Zambia, who is um, a passionate conservationist and one who has worked on all sides of the conservation fence, um, from community levels to foreign NGOs and all the way up to the IUCN and the national parks. So right before the break, we left off in talking about, you know, what is the benefit of hunting to communities and what do communities feel about this? And we um, started getting into trophy hunting, sustainability hunting, and uh, also known as subsistence hunting to the bushmeat trade. Um, so I have one final question um, on on the terms of culling. We'd left, we'd left off with, you know, wildlife is getting to the point where um, there's no room for it with our exponentially expanding human population and that uh, the alternative oftentimes turns to culling large herds of animals and hunting. So our discussion has been, you know, what benefits do these actually show? So uh, as Manny has worked with um, a variety of different uh, organizations and, and is quite knowledgeable. I have a genuine question. I'm curious it, in terms of how is it decided what proportion of the fees from culling and hunting actually ends up on the ground within the communities? Hello? Hi, Ellie. Yes, yeah. I, I get your question uh, very clearly. Uh, indeed, um, in as far as the proportion of how much actually is accrued or perhaps is you know, meant to go to the local communities. Uh, what has happened, for example, in Zimbabwe uh, a few years ago before all the problems that flared up in Zimbabwe, as you realize, um, there was a, a scheme called Campfire. And the Campfire program was meant to be creme de la creme. It was meant to be exemplary practice on how communities can actually benefit from wildlife. 
And indeed, it actually did show and demonstrated that wildlife has got to pay its way. But how long for? And is, if the wildlife pays, who is that wildlife paying its way to? And who is actually the beneficiary of that? Obviously, the model in Zimbabwe was that a certain percentage, in fact, a significant percentage, was actually going to the local communities, something like 50%. If one actually did buy a license to shoot a lion, let us assume it was about $50,000 to go and shoot a real good specimen of a lion for trophy purposes, then they would pay $50,000. And about 25 of that, of the license fee, will actually go to the local community. And if you think about it, would that $25,000 filter into the local community? Absolutely not. I mean, they are, I know of uh, some uh, people that actually were, you know, involved and running the campfire program. They did their very, very best, but there were obviously loopholes in the whole system and it didn't work. And the whole idea of trying to consider and think about culling. Culling, of course, is a very much as a conservation tool. And it is absolutely vital to think about why are we going to start culling? Should animals have enough room where they can actually roam? And what is the purpose of culling? And what is going to happen to any product or byproducts from the culling? It's been really, really a cruel practice in the past where culling has actually meant these guys you know, showing off with their 458 rifles, going out there and shooting animals. And for elephants, uh, for argument's sake, and not necessarily literally shooting them right away, but they tranquilize the poor animals. And once they are on their knees, and then they walk towards the animals, which are squealing, and then put the bullets straight to their heads. I mean, you know, if anyone has a chance to read a book by Daphne Sheldrick, who has been in Kenya for a long time, and she runs her own elephant orphanage, they will get the true picture of how cruel this practice is. Is that the book Love, Life, and Elephants? Absolutely. Yes, fabulous book. I certainly recommend it. Um, she's quite a, a, a conversation piece in herself. She's a friend of mine, and she's done an incredible job with elephants. I don't think we'd know two-thirds of what we know about elephants today if it were not for Daphne Sheldrick. Uh, what she does does bring up some contentious points of you know, elephants raised by people and what will they do once they do return to the wild, which they do. Um, I don't know that we'll go into that right now, but it is a point to ponder. So um, for a minute there, um, we were talking about wildlife paying for its existence through the, uh, the agenda, so to speak, of a lot of the NGOs and governments and the campfire program, which did a, do a spectacular job. But I think we've got to shift our paradigms. Um, I personally don't think wildlife can pay for its existence. Um, it doesn't have money. It doesn't have pockets. It doesn't have a job other than to keep our planet systems going. So in making wildlife pay for itself, once again, you use the word exploitation. It is humans that are making wildlife pay for itself, either through culling, or trophy hunting, so that the people who live with it can benefit somehow. Um, it, it, it's a convoluted question. It's, it's, um, I'm not even sure where to go with that or where the question was in there. What, 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 what's your comment? 
Well, I mean, evidently speaking, um, if you think about wildlife paying its way, I mean, obviously, this is a bit of a, a big, big issue at the moment with considering the human population, particularly, I mean, Africa population is actually booming. And um, as, as we speak, you know, um, you know there's, there's far less, you know, sort of opportunities for, in fact, the reserves that have actually already been designated are gradually being, you know, basically taken away, are being utilised or used perhaps for, um, you know, cultivation. And now we've got to think about uh, what is the sort of conversion uh, from an acre, uh, what would you get out of an acre by using it or utilising it for growing corn or growing wheat? in comparison to keeping it for wildlife. Uh, what is the value of that land in that context? So most of the local people will think, hang on, you know, in this, in as far as we're concerned, if I keep wildlife, what is it I'm going to earn out of this? If I cultivate and grow a crop, it might actually give me much more of a benefit. And it's because of the management system that's in place. People are now realizing that if wildlife is not being used as a resource and also as a way of contributing to uh, the local culture and local communities, which means people feel they obviously they don't want to have anything to do with it and no government is not going to change their mind. And the fact that some governments, in fact, at the moment do think that you know, people do not have a say whatsoever and they completely alienate them, say, so you are ignorant, you don't know what you're talking about, we're bringing in an expert coming in from the Western world who understands about conservation, modernism, and all sorts of different things. But, you know, if people are not part and parcel of it, absolutely no chance that they're going to harness and embrace that particular program or uh, conservation system. Let me just clarify a couple of things. You used um, wildlife as a resource, which is sort of the key of what we're talking about here, and that resource can be defined as, uh, is typically defined by most agendas in governments as an economic resource. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, what can I get out of this acre of land in terms of dollars or whatever currency with um, agriculture or uh, wildlife that just flows through it. So this goes back to some other conversations I've had on our wild world that we need to start looking as human beings, um, every country, every culture, when we talk about the West, um, as you had said earlier, these communities are made up of individuals. And it is we individuals, all of us, that need to make this paradigm shift of changing what we call the benchmark of health and wealth. And if you look at it as a benchmark of health from a planetary perspective, we need our wildlife as uh, landscape architects and drivers of the free benefits and services our planet gives us. And that seems to be part of the question or the um, equation that gets lost in Africa between the politics, the tourism, um, the conservation, and the hunting. Um, so... What, what do you think of that? Would you agree with that in terms of, you know, what are we what are we using as our benchmark? Well, um, let me take you first. Uh, let me take you back a bit um, with regards to uh, considering wildlife as a resource. Yes, indeed, that would be a, a very good way of pointing that out. Uh, wildlife as a resource, the only viable way, or perhaps not just the only way, but the most viable 
sort of option in as far as utilizing wildlife as a resource is through non-consumptive utilization. And by that, I mean the use of wildlife through tourism and indeed um, you know, benefiting from it in that way. Economically, therefore, the government will earn um, you know, whatever they have to earn from it by allowing tourists coming and view the wildlife. And if that income that's generated then is then filtered through to the local communities. But the issue ultimately is when all that money gets to filter back, if at all it does, it filters back into the local communities. If the local communities are not clearly told on where that money is coming from, then there's no link at all. The local communities do not link that development or perhaps that income to wildlife because the government thinks or we are doing this for the local people. But if the government can be as transparent and clear to point out to say the reason why this development or perhaps this particular aspect of us working in this particular local community, improving your infrastructure, building schools, building clinics, is because of wildlife. If there's that linkage developed, then the people in those areas will definitely value the wildlife and start thinking more in a positive and perhaps as you say, changing the paradigm, and they obviously start, you know, singing from the same hymn book as you know all of us on this on this planet. So we're sort of just we've just sort of made full circle because we've created national parks through the governments. Um, we've set aside land for wildlife so that people can benefit and get schools, etc., from having wildlife on their land. And over the past. 50 to 100 years, we're seeing it's not working. So what is the part of the equation of that that needs to change? Is it the education on the ground? Is it transparency, as you just said? Is it a different agenda? Is it um, losing the foreign aid um, agenda and goals and making foreign aid agenda and goals match to the community goals? I think um, as a human race, we've got the highest propensity of reacting to a crisis. And we tend to wait until when something goes really wrong before we can actually uh, sort of react and sort it out. But we kind of like, you know, a crisis happens, that's when we kind of think about the possible options on how to deal with the problem. Um, It is... Um, a big, big problem as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure lots of people will join me in this, that there is a greater degree of greed in as far as the people that are in these responsible positions are concerned. Mm-hmm. It's no longer this altruistic approach where you would like your fellow humans to succeed and benefit from you know, the very finite resources that we may have. Everyone is looking out for themselves without thinking about the most desperate, the people living in abject poverty, and you know they are the ones that are sidelined. And you know because of this greed, it drives and it makes it more of an entrenched uh, sort of problem where people end up being, you know, obviously they don't care anymore, and therefore they just you know start doing anything they can to try and justify the means and try and make a living. And the governments are generally corrupt. If they can actually put comprehensive policies in place, which are actually clearly, you know, proper guidelines to control and put a mechanism in place which identifies and recognizes the people who are the custodians of the land, 
uh, rather than only certain people, a select few, 10% perhaps of the population, lining their pockets and perhaps conniving with some of the Western world and the people that are the uh, uh, biggest demand for some of the resources that are in Africa at the moment. Well, you just said a whole lot of really critical information there. So I hope our listeners um, will come back and listen to this show again and uh, hear what Manny has said because it's um, the core of what's going on in conservation today and the uh, paradigm shift that has to happen. And in order to change a paradigm, then we need to understand what part of the paradigm it is we're looking to shift. So now we're going to get back a little more into this hot topic. If you'd like to call in, please call in at 866-472-5788. You can email me at wildize at wildeyes.org. Or you can join in our discussion groups at LinkedIn, African Wildlife Conservational Professionals, conservation professionals and uh, wildlife professionals. You can join in on Manny's blog, which uh, the link is provided on the uh, show description for for today, and um, our news and blog at our website at wildeyes at wildeyes.org. Okay, so now we're going to jump right back into it. Trophy hunting as a sport and for adrenaline junkies, which are usually coming from the West, um, is it really as sustainable as it makes itself out to be? Well, they, you could actually look at it in two ways, Ellie, here. And um, there are people there that are, you know, obviously, you know, supportive of, um, you know, sort of trophy hunting. And um, I think, um, you know, obviously, again, this I would like to point out, uh, I have no doubt that people will come out and say absolute nonsense. But um, the hunting um, community, uh, some are responsible and some are irresponsible. If it's done responsibly, perhaps you might have, you know, a degree of understanding why it's being done. But if it's being done for entertainment or for someone just as a sport to enjoy or to show off and bring along their trophy wife to show off how much money they've got, and perhaps take that particular trophy and go and mount it on their mantelpiece without actually realizing and understanding what exactly the money they have spent is going to be used for. And all that money is it's as good as, you know, coming to Africa, taking your money and throwing it in the air and letting those that have got the longest legs standing up to actually reach for it, rather than actually giving or letting that money spread out across the whole land and giving it to everybody. So there is a bit of a discrepancy in that respect. And obviously, in as far as um, the, the whole practice is concerned, I find it really, really difficult. And that trophy hunting has got no room at all in its current conservation is concerned because it gets abused and it is becoming a problem and that people are basically being corrupt including the government themselves and the hunters themselves. So this should actually come to an end. Otherwise, it will be a disaster. All right. We're going to pick this up because this is a really important conversation we're having right now. And for a minute, we're going to go to a break. And uh, you can call in at one 472 5788 if you'd like to join in the conversation. You can email me at wild 
I-Z-E at wildeyes.org. And we'll be right back with Manny Mvula and talking about hunting of uh, wildlife. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back with Ellie Weiss and Manny Mvula. And we're talking about a very hot topic, contentious and emotional. And uh, that depends on which side of the pond you're standing um, and whether it's um, animal welfare or economics. It's a subject that uh, is, uh, it provokes and uh, brings out a lot of opinions and uh, uh, emotion. So uh, let's take it down to a specific, as we did earlier with elephants. Um, in terms of trophy hunting, uh, we were talking about it's mostly done by Westerners and the amount of money that it takes for a Westerner to get this license and the permit and bring it back into the United States with all the laws of IUCN and uh, the ESA and um, what it and what of that money actually ends up into the community and how it benefits them. But in terms of lions, there's this concept called the six-year rule, and that means lions, as of six years old, are um, game, so to speak, to be hunted. Uh, in reality, six-year-old lions have just gone through 
being kicked out of the pride, learning how to be a lion and make it on its own for about three or four years to be able to take over a pride. So these six-year-old lions are in their prime, both genetically and um, uh, physically. So killing a six-year-old lion is very disruptive. And as Manny had said earlier, there is no place for trophy hunting, especially of our carnivores in today's world. And with the uh, population of lions in such steep decline, 50 years ago, there were 450,000 lions across Africa. Today, uh, there are an estimated 23 to 30,000. And of those, uh, 2,600 are males. Um, I believe Zambia and Zimbabwe have this six-year rule in place for trophy hunting. Uh, what are your comments on that, Manny? Well, the six-year rule, um, in as far as you know, specifically talking about lions, in, you know, uh, this is breaking news, which I suppose has been through the media and the international media. We've got a new minister in Zambia, the tourism minister, uh, recently, you know, sort of uh, put in her position. And uh, she has actually cracked the whip. And I, right. I salute her, I salute her. And she's actually come in literally with uh, a lot of muscle and she is dealing with the problems. Uh, Zambia Wildlife Authority have been caught out on the back foot because as far as concessions, allocation of concession hunting is concerned, there was some problems. Of course, this, the evidence will be revealed a little later on because this has only recently been happening. Uh, I suppose Zimbabwe is still quite a bit of a big problem with regards to the instability in its political standing. But as far as Zambia is concerned, you know, let me hone in on Zambia itself, which is where I'm from, and I know the story inside out. And I've got connections with the people that are working on this program. Uh, the minister has actually made a decision, along with other advisors, who understand well that if we actually completely shoot out and kill all our lions, we are going to end up in trouble. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to work out that there will be a problem. I mean, you know, um, I was involved in lion research about, you know, four years ago. I took a sabbatical to go and do research. The Zambia Wildlife Authority had absolutely no idea how many lions were actually in a designated area of a national park. For example, South Wango National Park, which is where I worked for many, many years indeed, measures about 9,050 square kilometers. There was absolutely no idea how many lions were in there. There was anecdotal data. And, you know, all the safari guys would know, well, there's so many, you know, there's a pride here and there's a pride there. But there was absolutely no scientific information whatsoever. Lions being lions, of course, they will actually cross from the national park and go into the GMA, which is what we call a game management area where concession or hunting is allowed. And the hunters will actually bait lions by shooting an animal, perhaps a hippo, from the river, and then they drag it because of that smell. Lions will just literally, you know, cross the river. Of course lions can swim. They'll cross the river, follow that trail of blood, and indeed there'll be a hunter on the other side in hide using his 458 on a tripod and nail the lion. Indeed, every, I'm sorry, go ahead. And it, it, this is a big issue. I mean, the, the whole aspect of hunting and, and killing these super predators 
I mean, it's, it's not a sport at all. They call it sport hunting. The sport is completely lost. There isn't, in a sport, it's got to have an element of danger in it, as it used to happen in the old days. You know, my grandfather used to go out there to go and, you know, sort of kill a buffalo because they wanted to celebrate, they had a ceremony. And there was an element of danger. I've lost some of my family because they've been out in the bush trying to, you know, kill something, an animal to go and use for a ceremony. And, you know, with that danger, the tracking and following and looking at the footprints in the spore, rather than using bait and trying to attract an animal, you sit up in a hide using your telescopic rifle and then shoot it from, I mean, and while you're sitting on your scorch, and it just doesn't tie in, it doesn't make sense at all. Well, you bring up two really important points there. One is the element of danger for adrenaline junkies, and uh, we've gotten so, in the Western world, developed world, so isolated from our natural world that, you know, having a squirrel pop through the window into your house is probably the most dangerous thing many people see, or a coyote who's just taken their dog, or a mountain lion that's coming around. That gives them that interface of adrenaline and danger, but we've become so disassociated that we are... um, uh, using the excuse of hunting, which is not sporting at all, as you just said, by baiting or canned hunts, which, uh, which is a whole other deplorable activity, to re- revitalize that sense of connection with nature. And it's just really unfortunate that in that revitalizing our connection with nature that we are killing uh, the very species that um, we need to keep the balance in the rest of the world. So we've covered a lot of uh, ground in terms of what makes trophy hunting so unpopular and in some cases considered barbaric by most citizens of the world. And I think you might have a little more to say. Um, is there a reason for it to, to exist? Because we've, as we've discussed, who benefits? Um, well. and and there was that example of the Donald Trump. You were talking about the wealthy people, his sons, on, and the killing spree that was all over the Internet, um, otherwise known as a hunting safari. And it brought so much public attention that they had to finally address it. So why should hunting of these mega carnivores, I'm not talking about hunting for food, I'm not, and I'm not talking so much about hunting for the commercial bushmeat. That's a, a, a different subject that we could go on for hours. But hunting for trophy of magnificent predators, is there a need for it today? Well, absolutely not. Um, uh, just as a classic example, it wasn't a predator at all, but King Juan Carlos, I think it's Juan Carlos of Spain, uh, there was a lot of controversy about his issue. I mean, he has been the president uh, of WWF, and uh, due to public, um, you know, sort of outcry, he apparently he's had to resign and all sorts of different things. But anyway, let's move on to the, you know, sort of the, 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 the hunting and perhaps, you know, trophy hunting of predators. Um, there was um, a, 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 certain, a, a sort of idea that, you know, if there is a six-year rule, then that might just be right because you then get a better specimen of an animal, a lion or a leopard or whatever it is. And they actually, you know, use all these technical terms like, you know, age-based um, selection, uh, you know, sort of trophy-based selection, age-based, age-based trophy selection. 
which means that you've got to first consider how old an animal is. But as you so rightly pointed out earlier, a little while ago, that these animals are that age. Uh, they are prime genetically and physically. They're just about to get into their territoriality and get into the supremacy of taking over a pride. For example, lions, of course, you know, leopards are solitary, but we won't talk about lions. And when you take away specimens at that level, what are you doing? We are actually doing damage to our own ecosystem. We are completely destroying the fabric of nature. And there is absolutely no room for it. And I completely disregard and I find it very, very hard. It is heartbreaking, breaks my brain, to think that someone will be out there to go and shoot a cat, you know, one of these fantastic specimens, to go and actually have it mounted on their mantelpiece. And to have that bit of element of adrenaline because they've actually shot a lion. I mean, you know, to be honest, this is something that is appalling. It's all about ego and manhood, or even if it's a woman, it's 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 deplorable. I I don't understand the mindset, and I don't know if you've seen the uh, lion aid. Uh, conversation on LinkedIn, which is titled, How to Kill a Lion and Feel Jolly Good About It. It's uh, in the African Wildlife Conservational Professionals Discussion Group, and it's really about um, debunking all the myths that the uh, hunting and trophy hunting industry have put out there um, saying that wildlife uh, hunting, trophy hunting of wildlife actually benefits conservation. As you can probably tell through the conversation Manny and I have been having today, that it does not. I don't care what argument you're going to use on the on the hunting side, unless it's an older um, animal who is no longer a functioning part of his society, whether it be an old bull or an old lion. But as Manny is probably very aware of from his lion research, we don't know. We don't know at what point these predators stop being functional parts of their community. Um, we've already uh, discussed that um, uh, hunting is, a, is an ego thing, and we've already discussed that it does not really fuel or benefit the local. So there, it leads to the question, we've got a few more minutes here. Um, the only point we haven't covered, does legal and licensed hunting fuel the illegal wildlife trade? Well, on that point of view, obviously, you know, illegal um, or perhaps legal hunting, i.e. where actually hunters come in from the Western world and they pay so much money, and uh, the fact that they're coming in to actually get profits. And if there is um, a certain price tag on that particular trophy, what then would actually stop a local person being then convinced to say, look, you go and get me a lion because if I can get it on the cheap, absolutely spot on. I'll pay you so many dollars, absolute patents, okay, absolute nothing. And that local person, because they're living in abject poverty, they're not benefiting and the government are not doing anything at all to look into these rural communities at all in any way or supporting them and improving their livelihoods. So that person will obviously be convinced by a middleman who then is going to make a killing out of all that, that person is going to go and perhaps use a snare and, you know, get any animal they can. And if they get something that is worthy of a trophy, of course, 
then they're going to then go and sell it at, you know, a reasonable price to this middle person. This middle man then goes to sell it on and they get a hell of a lot of money out of that. And that's the way the whole system works. And it's all corrupt and completely undermining the local people and making them feel so stupid and, you know, as if they can't think for themselves and that, you know, if they don't actually dance to the tune of this demand, it's a, a whole supply and demand issue. You know, the money and the, the haves and the have-nots. I mean, yes. surely, you know, there's, there's so much wealth in this world, to be honest, that, you know, there's, it's not equitable sort of distribution of it at all. This has been a fascinating conversation, and Manny, I would love to have you back on Our Wild World, if that would work for you, because I think there's a lot more we can get into here, and perhaps once people listen to the show, we'll get some more points of and uh, um, people joining in the conversation. So be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our website, wildeyes.org. Check out Manny's uh, webpage at um, www.snaredblog.com and um, www.highfiveclub.co.uk. There's a fabulous video trailer about um, the Snared Project, and I would like to have Manny back so we can discuss that. And in the meantime, we are out of time for today, so I'd like, you, I'd like to thank Manny for joining me today. And all of you step out into our wild world and think about what we've talked today and do what you can do. Thank you. Ali, it's been a pleasure. I've been honored indeed to have been in your presence and talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 